Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Comes to family, there are some things that never change. Take a young married couple who have just had their first born child. There is something that we all share in common, if you've had that experience, the wonder and awe at the miracle of life. There's just something about that that is just, it's just family. And then there are other things that come along even later, like the sense that most of us feel of incompetence and confusion and who is this person when that firstborn child becomes a teenager, right? And it all changes for us as parents. I love what columnist Dave Barry said. He really touched a nerve with me this week in his article entitled, for some of us, this will remember this, What We Have Here is a Failure to Communicate. That's the title of his article. And he writes this. Now that my son has turned 13, I'm thinking about writing a self-help book for parents parents of teenagers. It would be a sensitive, insightful book that would explain the complex, emotionally charged relationship between the parent and the adolescent child. The title would be, I'm a jerk, you're a jerk. (laughs) The underlying philosophy of this book would be that contrary to what you hear from experts, it's a bad idea for parents and teenagers to attempt to communicate with each other. Because there's always the risk that one of you will actually find out what the other is thinking. (laughs) For example, my son thinks it's a fine idea to stay up to 3 a.m. on school nights reading what are called suspense novels, defined as novels where the most positive thing that can happen to a character is that the evil one will kill him before he eats his brains. (laughs) My son sees no connection between the fact that he stays up reading these books and the fact that he doesn't feel like going to school the next morning. Rob, I tell him, as he's eating his breakfast in extreme slow motion with his eyes completely closed, so that sometimes accidentally he puts food into his ear. (laughs) I want you to sleep earlier. Dad, he says, using the tone of voice you might use when attempting to explain an abstract intellectual concept to an oyster. (laughs) Boy, if I had that. Dad, you just don't understand. Well, at least he doesn't wear those giant pants. I keep seeing young teenage males wearing enormous pants, pants where two or three teenagers could occupy them simultaneously. (laughs) Boy, there's some parents of teenagers here today, aren't there? I asked my son about these pants, and he told me that mainly basers wear them. Basers are people who like a lot of bass in their music. They drive around in cars with four trillion watt sound systems playing recordings of what sounds like an above-ground nuclear blast, (laughs) but with less of an emphasis on the melody. My son also told me that there are people called posers who dress like basers, but are in fact secretly preppies. He said that some posers also pose as headbangers, who are people who like heavy metal music, which is performed by skinny men with huge hair. <laughs> now, I realize I've mainly been giving my side of the parent-teenager relationship, and I promise to give my son's side if he ever comes out of his room. <laughs> Remember how the news media made a big deal about it when those people came out after spending two years in Biosphere 2? Well, two years is nothing. Veteran parents around me assure me that teenagers routinely spend that long in the bathroom. In fact, veteran parents assure me that I haven't seen anything yet. Wait till he gets his driver's license, they say. That's when Fred and I turn to heroin. (laughs) Some things never change, do they? Like parents and teenagers. On the other hand, as you and I know, there are some things that do change. And when it comes to the issue of families, there are things that are changing around us every day, radically changing. In the past 30 years, we have seen some radical changes in the structure of the family and the kinds of families that society deems acceptable. In the past 30 years, we have seen the roles of, that men and women play within a marriage 
change and sometimes turn topsy-turvy. The priority of the family has given way over the last 30 years to the priority of the individual. The purpose of what a family is to be has changed. A hundred years ago, the family was the future building block of tomorrow's society. Now it's a place for me to get what I want. Family values that used to be clear have now turned at least to cloudy, with more and more emphasis on what's in it for the individual. It's a bold new world we live in, isn't it? It's a world that has changed so remarkably, even in the last 15 years, that no longer is it just mom and, and dad getting tired of one another and having the ease of divorce. Now in 1993, children are divorcing their parents. Whether we know it or not, sociologists are telling us that over the last 30 years, Americans have been conducting what is tantamount to a vast national experiment in family life. An experiment which shows no signs of abating. It's a bold new world. And for the church to be effective, it has got to understand that it has to be brave in the midst of it. We need to know what all that is occurring around us means. Well, maybe better yet, we need to feel what is happening around us. We need to see the lives that are at risk. We need to feel the urgency of this particular hour and who and what will be lost if we do not become brave. We need to know and feel what all this means if we are going to be in a place where we can offer what may be to some is a hard but appropriate response. If you look on your outlines, let me start with a statement, family is culture. Family is culture. In every home across our land, tomorrow's culture is incubating. As you go home today, drive through your neighborhood and look at the different houses. Inside every one of those houses, tomorrow's culture is incubating in the lives of the children who live there. Now, with the guiding hand of responsible parents, the guiding hand of parents who practice right, who are clear about wrong, who invest in their children with heavy doses of love and attention and discipline, if they do that, an energetic and productive and prosperous culture is almost assured. It's a pretty simple formula, quite frankly. But withdraw that guiding hand or replace that hand or change that hand so that its integrity is now laced with hypocrisy or its trust with infidelity or its attention and love with chronic absenteeism. Change its discipline and offer instead entertainment. And the outcomes those little pots that are boiling in your neighborhood, the mixture is radically altered. The culture that is teeming in those homes are not bricks upon which you will build the future of tomorrow. What is being stirred up in, in those homes is more like a sledgehammer that once released will go out and knock holes in the very foundation of our society. And no amount of government aid no amount of social programming, no amount of education, therapy groups, or even the police can make up for the vacuum and the miseries that right now are being cooked up in today's homes. That's because government is not culture. That is because our school systems can never become culture. Social programming can only put Band-Aids at best Police departments can only rein it in and lock it up. But they're not culture. Family. Family. Family is culture. Tomorrow's culture. Nowhere is the, is the case for the power of responsible parenting set forth more pungently than in William Golding's book, Lord of the Flies. Now that may cause some of you to have to turn back the clock a little bit to remember that book that you read in college and some of you are going to say, but parents weren't even there in Lord of the Flies. And that's my point. They weren't there. To refresh your memory, Golden's novel is about, Golden's novel is about a group of English lads 
who get marooned on a tropical island when their airplane that's carrying them away from atomic-ravaged England then crashes. And only these young boys make it to shore. And they find themselves on this tropical island all alone with an abundance of food and water, but more precious to them, unbridled freedom. Just young men all alone doing whatever they want. The French philosopher Rousseau and other naturalists would have loved that. And they would have predicted in their philosophies that the innocent children set off in this idyllic paradise would have produced the ideal culture. Such was the belief, at least in Rousseau's day, of the noble savage, the innocence of youth that gets oppressed by adult extremisms. The same with J.P. Salinger's novel, if you've read it, Catcher in the Rye, which sought to promote the ideal that attributed all evil, all corruption, all indulgence, and all hypocrisy simply to the world of adults. So here we have the perfect environment with the innocence of youth. And if you remember Lord of the Flies, it is as it unfolds, we see not the unspoiled innocence of youth developing a pure society, but we see the reckless barbarism of unchecked males, untaught males, undisciplined males unleash their barbarity on one another. Nowhere is that better seen in the life of one of the main characters named Jack. When Jack left England, he was the head of the choir back in England. Over time, as we watch the development of his life, he embraces out of the darker side of his unchecked nature a life of savagery and violence and murder and perverted sex. It's a good book to read with a whole new slant, if you'd like. Now, why do I mention that? Because if you look all over the face of the American landscape, you will see that our culture is quite literally painting the story Lord of the Flies, into reality. Every night we can watch a scene or two of this drama unfold on our television sets. Every morning we can pick up the paper and read a column of two of another page in the chapter of our Lord of the Flies. As we watch children left alone by irresponsible parents, our career-chasing ones who have no time for their kids, our children with their natures left untamed, unchecked, and undisciplined and unloved by the void of an unhealthy family life. And what we get as a result of that concoction is that we are seeing around us in every neighborhood, in every city, growing islands not of paradise, but of terror, of physical violence, of immediate gratification now and a predatory sex. That's what we see around us. You see, family is where culture is won or lost. And in the bold new world, family is everything because family's culture. Now, I want you to know that this morning, this will be somewhat of a hard message because to really peer into the family past the rhetoric exposes some harsh realities. I don't intend to do this to hurt anybody because it's hard to talk about the deficits that are involved in single parenting when I know so many single parents in our body and who are giving their absolute best and I would honor them for what they have done and the role that they play. But it's still hard to talk about the deficits. It's hard to talk about the long-term effects of divorce on children when I know a lot of divorcees who are wounded because they didn't intend to be divorced and they've been left alone and they don't need any more guilt or pain. But it's still important that we peer into what really is taking place. It's hard to tell a remarrying person the difficulties that the blended children will experience as they come from a torn background of two previous marriages and will struggle with those things long term. It's hard to say what you really know about unwed motherhood. See, here's what I want you to hear me say. I have the difficult tightrope walk of trying to balance truth and sensitivity. But I want you to know there are times where truth and sens sensitivity, just by the very fact of the discussion, must collide with one another. And this is such a time. I want to be sensitive to those who are in situations like these 
But at the same time, I believe we have avoided some of the additional truth we need to hear. And we've even fostered some myths about families that some of you here need to understand and hear about. So I would like to address two of these myths here this morning, but before I do, let me again say, I'm not here to dump any guilt or pain on people. That's not my intent. My intent is to move us towards health. And certainly I'm not overlooking, as we expose some of these realities, the power of God or His restorative grace to lessen the losses that you and I maybe have experienced in our own families or experiencing presently. I mean, Bill Wellens comes out of a divorced home. Robert Lewis comes out of a broken, alcoholic home. And certainly there is great testimony to the restorative, healing work of God as we ran in our woundedness to God Himself and to the wisdom of His Word. And I would offer that even as we speak here this morning. But at the same time, I have an intent here, and it's very simple. My intent is that I want some of us, a large number of us, to know, to understand the truth about different family structures, what they're really like, before we are seduced into them or contemplate them in ignorance or in naiveness. And at the same time, I want all of us to know what is happening to our society so that we can fight for it in appropriate ways, especially those who are young here. I, I have a burden for the young marrieds this morning because they're operating at this moment out of strength, and I want to build on that strength for a lifetime. The first myth I'd like to address is that all families are equal. You get a lot of extreme statements today. I watched on PBS the other night a classroom at the University of Washington where two lesbian professors were giving what they said was documentation that the lesbian family was a healthier environment than the traditional family for children and their upbringing. One student in that classroom setting objected and asked for the statistics, where they were getting those statistics, only to be rebuffed with clapping hands and given nothing other than shame. The reason for that is because there is no such statistics like that. But oftentimes, statistics are pulled together and politically uh, politicized in such a way that we can say whatever we want if we're carrying an agenda. And on the college campus today, there is a radical agenda being propagated on the minds of the students. At the same time, I read an article where it said that a single parent makes a better parent than a two-parent system because it helps their child educationally. Single-parent kids read faster. And the reason in the article was that a single parent not being distracted by giving devotion to a spouse, had more time to educate within the home. Then you read articles about cohabiting couples, how they come together, and it's so much better to cohabitate before marriage because you can try out one another emotionally, psychologically, and especially sexually to see, you know, if we're compatible. We ignore all the data that says those couples who do that have an extremely higher divorce rate than those who don't. But we're not really interested in truth. See, we just hear that stuff, and then in a deceptive kind of mindset, it soaks into our brain that all family structures have advantages and disadvantages, and, and in, in the long run, they all kind of come out equal. <coughs> I want you to know, all family structures are not equal. Not even close. Children and families disrupted by divorce will experience difficulties that children from intact families simply will not. And these difficulties, to our chagrin, will persist into their adulthood. They will have harder time achieving intimacy in relationships. There's all kinds of data on that. One study found that half, 50% of children divorced, will enter adulthood anxious about life, worried about it, underachieving in life and angry. A non-Christian couple who are loving, non-Christian, who are loving, who exhibit a high degree of integrity and stability will give their children a lifetime of emotional, psychological, and social advantages that a struggling Christian couple who are double-minded in their value system, who are acknowledging Christ and chasing the world, will not. For a lifetime. That's the hard truth. Children who grow up in step-parent families and 
or in step-parent families are often less successful as adults on the whole in two clear domains of life. And they're the two most important, relationships and work. Single parents by choice, you know, the Murphy Brown kind, are three times as likely as children in two-parent families to have emotional and behavioral problems. They're more likely, much more likely, to drop out of school, to abuse drugs, to be involved in premarital sex, and to get in trouble with the law. 22% of the children in one-parent families will experience poverty for seven years or more. 22%. That's compared with 2% for two-parent families. The intact two-parent family structure that's stable, not unstable, but stable, has no rivals, not even close. And all the information that we are seeing today just simply backs that up. But all that information will be choked out by a biased media, removed by biased professors in order to propagate the idea that all family structures are equal. And they're not. A two-parent family advantages children psychologically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually in ways vastly superior to any other family structure. And those aren't opinions being stated. That, in fact, is just the truth. Barbara Whitehead, writing in the Atlantic Monthly, offers what I think is a good summary of the growing diversity of family structures and research, research that's coming out in, in, in large quantities today about cohabiting couples and single parents and blended families and out-of-wedlock mothers. And I want you to listen to what she says. Taken together, that is the research, all the body of research today, taken together, the research presents a powerful challenge to the prevailing view of family change as social progress. Not a single one of the assumptions underlying that view can be sustained against the empirical evidence. Single-parent families are not able to do well economically on a mother's income. In fact, most teeter on the economic brink, and many fall into poverty. Growing up in a disruptive family does not enrich a child's life or expand the number of adults who will now be committed to the child's well-being. In fact, disruptive families through divorce, through absence, threaten the psychological well-being of children and diminish the investment of adult time and money in them. Family diversity in the form of increasing numbers of single parents and step-parent families does not strengthen the social fabric of our society. It dramatically weakens and undermines society, placing new burdens on schools, on courts, on prisons, and the welfare system. These new families are not an improvement to the nuclear family, nor are they even just as good, whether you look at the outcomes for children or the outcomes for society as a whole. In short, far from representing social progress, family change in America represents a stunning example of social regress. That's the hard truth. The hard truth is that some family structures are better than others. And the best, the most advantageous for children is the one that God originally designed that we read the minute we open the first couple of pages of our Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 where it says, one man, one woman in intimacy committed to one another and their children for a lifetime. Nothing, nothing comes close to that structure. A second myth is that children in time will bounce back from divorce or absent parents. In 1975, the national bestseller for that year was the book Creative Divorce by Mel Kanzler. Some of you might remember that. It was a nationwide bestseller. People were looking at that and drawing off of, quote, the research that was done there. Let me read you what chapter 7 says. Kanzler writes, I know of no other aspect of divorce that causes more anguish than the parents' fear of how it will affect the children. It is vital, therefore, that from the outset, divorcing parents rid themselves of some false notions. And then he gives two. Two of the biggest ones that helped a lot of parents walk out the door. First, children are resilient. They will bounce back. Secondly, the impact of divorce on children is far less severe than the consequences of remaining in an unbroken but troubled home. Now that was in 1975. And the reality was, was there was no empirical research for any length of time to the burgeoning divorce rate that was occurring in our country. Now there is, and the data is pouring in, and here's what it says. First, children do not rebound from absent parents 
are family breakups. The fact is, is that they are wounded and damaged and the effects of that breakup carry into a lifetime. Some of you remember if you had parents or grandparents who went through the depression. If you had parents or grandparents who went through the depression, that singular event marked their lives for a lifetime. I had all kinds of people tell me, mom and dad, you know, grew up in the depression. He got out, maybe he was a physician or a lawyer or a company president. They had all kinds of money, but no matter how much money they had, they were still hoarding it, you know, putting it aside, you know, going by a real disciplined budget because of the fear of the unexpected, like a depression. That singular event marked them for a lifetime. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think a child growing up in a home whose dad or mom leaves, that that event is not like the depression, that marks out their life for the rest of their lives, and they will live in its shadow till the day they die? So that's the hard reality. There was an excellent study done by Judith Wallerstein and Sandra Blakesley. Their research has been put into a book, Second Chances, Men, Women, and Children a Decade After Divorce. At the end of your outline, I have recommended it for some of you to read. But let me just mention an excerpt from it. She said that as she studied divorce in the lives of people over a 15 to 20 year period, she found out how deceptive divorce is. She said, and I'm quoting, legally divorce is a single event, but psychologically it is a continuous chain, a never ending chain of events, relocations, radically shifting relationships strung through time, a process that forever changes the lives of the people involved. Here's where the study revealed. Five years after a divorce, see what we're gonna discover here is that divorce is not like some people said it was, a cold that has severe symptoms that after a period of time, there's kind of a restorative process and you're back to health. Instead, she did this. She started tracking these couples and their children, all of them under 10 years age, and followed them all the way into their 30s and interviewed them every so many years, every one of them personally. She found five years after divorce, more than a third of the children that she interviewed experienced moderate or, de or severe depression on a regular basis. At 10 years, a significant number of the now young men and women appeared to be in trouble and troubled, drifting, and underachieving. At 15 years, many of the 30-ish adults were struggling to establish strong love relationships of their own. In short, she says, far from recovering from their parents' divorce, a significant percentage of these grown-ups were still suffering from it. See, I think the truth is what James Collier reported in his book, The Rise of Selfishness in America. He said, the research clearly indicates that children are better able to deal with a pair of bickering parents than they are trying to cope for a lifetime with the loss of either one of them. No wonder the prophet Malachi in Malachi 2.16 quotes God saying this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I hate, I hate divorce. I hate it. Now why would he say it like that so powerfully, so strongly? Because God of all people knows how He created us. He knows what needs to be invested in us. And He knows the incredible damage that we will do to ourselves if we pursue a reckless course of ending relationships, searching for the endless summer of self, which never comes about. He knows that and He hates it. Absent parents, particularly absent dads, inflict the same kind I think of long-lasting misery as a divorce does in a child's life. I've seen that in every family life conference I've done around the country. From New York, I've been in New York, I've been in Boston, I've been in San Francisco with thousands of people doing a family life conference and speaking to the dads on what it means to have a father. And at the end of every session, no matter where I go, they come flooding up, crying their eyes out, wishing they had one moment with a father who would look them in the eyes and say, I love you. I love you and I care about you. I'm proud of you. Just one word of affirmation. I had a man say every year he goes out to his father's grave and cries over that grave, wishing he could bring his dad out of that ground just to give him one statement of affirmation. He's 50 years old. I want you to look at the two charts I provided on your outline. We could probably call these insanity charts because I think they measure the progress of our cultural pathology. 
And I want you to notice as you look at the out-of-wedlock births, note just that the percentage growth of white out-of-wedlock births is far steeper than that of blacks. Don't let the fact that it's 70% for blacks throw you. I mean, that's, that's incredible that they've had a, even a 66% rise over the last 30 years. But white couples have gone up 144% over the last 30 years. We've gone from 390,000 divorces to 1.2 million divorces in America. That's per year, by the way. That's per year. And anybody who just looks at just these two statistics will say that we are in a national crisis of unparalleled proportion. Because remember, family is culture. And the culture that America has enjoyed for 200 years has mainly been the product of intact two-parent families whipping up healthy adults who build the brick of society upward. But now upon us is descending another kind of culture fueled by alternative family structures of absentee moms and dads, non-existent stealth parents, you could call them, broken homes, irresponsible, self-seeking people, and you could call that the Lord of the Flies culture. And it's here. You know, history has something to tell us about that, and I want you to hear clearly what this gentleman says in his book, between families and civilizations. Carl Zimmerman researched the correlation between family life and the lifespan of civilizations. And in it, he discovered some amazing, amazing similarities. Along the lifespan of an empire or a nation, there are certain specific kind of family structures that follow that lifespan from birth of the empire till the death of the empire. And his research covered not only the Greek and Roman empires, of ancient history, but also the rising Western democracies of France, Germany, the United States, and so on and so forth. And as he looked at the family and civilization, he noted that every one of them began with a certain type of family structure that he calls, first of all, the trustee family. The trustee family was one that was strongly authoritarian. It was usually headed by a patriarch with a strong spirit within himself of selflessness and hard work. Those were the core values of the family. We're going to live for each other, not for ourselves, and we're going to work hard. And that's how the family began, a great empire. And in time, what took place is the nation would begin to solidify and come together under that kind of more authoritarian leadership and would establish itself as a strong, vying nation among nations or empires. But then that would usher in the next phase of family life called the domestic family. Here, family bonding is still strong. There's some individual rights that are now respected more than the authoritarian family. The authoritarian patriarchy, the, guy, the man is still leading, but it has given way to a much more cooperative teamwork between the man and the wife, and their rights are respected among themselves. They are seen more as a team, a unit, than one lording it over the other. Both invest themselves in parenting at the sacrifice of some personal desires and ambitions. And as Zimmerman notes, it's with the advent of the domestic family that the empire or the nation ascends to greatness. It becomes a nation or an empire standing out above all other nations and empires. With that is ushered in a great span of prosperity. But as we all know, when we look back over history, prosperity over time usually corrupts, doesn't it? And with that corruption, the domestic family begins to alter itself into a final phase called the atomistic family. The atomistic family is characterized by the fact that the bond and power of the family that had existed for, at that time, hundreds of years, that that bond begins to wane. People are seen now as distinct units, not, not real interconnected with the other members of the family. There's an obsession with individualism that begins to develop. Rights take precedent over responsibility and self-sacrifice gives way to unabashed selfishness. And in time, that atomistic family ultimately disintegrates. And as Zimmerman notes, as it does, the collapse of the civilization follows in lockstep with it. As the family goes, so goes the nation. His conclusion was that family and culture, family and society, family and the lifespan of a civilization, they go hand in hand. 
In fact, Zimmerman pointed out, to give us a little biblical perspective, that at the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire was just shifting gears from the domestic family into the atomistic family structure. And some of you remember when I went through in the last message about families in Ephesus and the changes and the roles and all that were going on can, kind of, can begin to get a sense of flavor of what Zimmerman is trying to point out here. But that was just the beginning, the first century. From that point on, Rome as an empire was in a state of steady decline, as was the families within the Roman Empire. They kind of went together like what you see when kids do the three-legged race and tie their, their legs together. That's how closely family and civilization are put together. But when you try to run, you usually end up falling flat on your face. And that's exactly what happened to the Roman Empire because by the fifth century, they had totally collapsed to barbarians. Not because the barbarians were stronger than the Romans, but because the Roman Empire had rotted from within. It had no inner spirit. It had no life. It had no vitality. It was a dead culture. In his book, Zimmerman set forth several specific patterns of behavior that really become prominent during the atomistic period of family life. And I would like to read them to you, but I want you to note on the bottom of your outline, if you've got one, note that, that Zimmerman wrote this book in 1947. Now, I purposefully selected this book, 1947, because it puts him outside the images and the issues of our day. He's not influenced so much by that. And 1947, America looked great. It also puts him outside the influence of political correctness that's so prevalent for today. So I'm just going to read you what he says are these prominent features of the atomistic family stage, and you can just draw your own conclusions. He says, when the atomistic family arrives, this is what it'll look like. First, marriage loses its sacredness and is frequently broken by divorce. Secondly, the traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Alternate forms of marriage arise and individual marriage contracts are advocated. Now, let me tell you, in 1947, there was no such thing as that. He's just drawing off of history. Thirdly, feminist movements abound. Women lose their inclination for childbearing and childrearing, and the birth rate decreases. Fourthly, there is, an in, there is increased public disrespect for parents, parenthood, and authority in general so that parenthood becomes harder and harder for those who still try to rear children. Fifth, there is an increase in juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. Sixth, there is a refusal of people with traditional marriages to accept family responsibilities while they watch others go free. The hostility of pseudo-intellectuals to the family soon spreads out to the common people, sealing the doom of the society. Seventh, there is an increasing desire for and acceptance of adultery. And then eighth, finally, there is a tolerance for and spread of sexual perversions of all kinds, especially homosexuality, but including many others. This generally, according to Zimmerman, marks the final stage of societal disintegration. I liken these statements to the warning sirens that you and I hear occasionally around Little Rock during a fierce storm. You know, you see those little things on your television screen that says that there's a tornado watch and you don't think much of them. But when you hear around Little Rock that you suddenly realize this is serious stuff and you begin to look outside your window or car or you begin to contemplate where you need to go to take shelter. What I just read to you are warning sirens and they're sounding. And across our land, they are sounding. And it's time to run to cover. Not to get away from all this and barricade yourself. I would say to run to the cover of the wisdom of God's Word and begin to practice it. That's our only hope. That is going to be our only salvation. I'd like to put all this in a spiritual perspective with the graph that you see on the next page that I've entitled Family Tree. It's just something I cooked up to kind of put all this in into a summary. But on this family tree, I want you to notice, I'm going to draw some observations here. At the top is the ideal, Genesis 2. The ideal was where a man and woman would come together. A man would leave his father and his mother. He would cleave to his wife. He'd stick to her like glue is what the Hebrew says. And they would become one flesh. Uh, 
a metaphor for intimacy, oneness. And they would go out and produce and multiply and subdue the earth, not because they produced, but subdue the earth because what they released out of their marriage was healthy, wealthy offspring who were going to make a difference in tomorrow. And that's the ideal. But notice I've got sin written across there. And with sin, every couple who has ever been since goes into their marriage with some dysfunction in their life because sin is dysfunctional. Okay, so I want to make sure everybody understands that. But there is a progressive dysfunction. And so what I'd like you to do to start out, just to fill in a couple of blanks, notice there's these two thick lines, one at the top horizontally and one at the bottom. At the top, you might put functional at the bottom, you might put dysfunctional. The closer you move up this family tree, the more functional your family is. The further down you step in this family tree, the more dysfunction that's automatically injected into that relationship. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, as an observation, the, the uh, different family structures. I've tried to put some representative models here. But what I want you to notice, first of all, is that Christians, Christians, look there are spread throughout this outline. They're at the top, but they're also at the bottom. In fact, I want you to notice one, it's the, uh, as you start from the left, it's the second end, where it says, non-Christian couple, stable with high integrity. Notice how high up that couple is. Now, that couple is not going to offer anything spiritually to their kids, but here's what they are going to offer. Those kids are going to leave that home more stable, more secure, more emotionally prepared, more psychologically advantaged, more socially clear about their role than any of these other Christian couples that fall beneath them or Christian singles. Now, yes, they're without Christ, and yes, they need Christ. But that kind of stability with mom and dad produce healthy offspring. I want you to see that. I also want you to notice that the best, though, is the idea where you've got two who are working together who have a spiritual inclination as well. And then notice at the bottom, the worse, is that single parent by choice, that Murphy Brown that caused so much a stir, who is worldly and selfish. And you know there's some real Murphy Browns out there. I read a quote by one uh, female executive who said of her unwed maternity these words, and I'm quoting, I know it's selfish, but this was something I needed to do for me. You know, I can take that quote and I can pull a history book off my shelf and open up and let you read, read Will Durant as he discusses family life in the Roman Empire in the first century. And he will say that women no longer saw themselves as giving birth to the next generation. They no longer saw children as a way to sacrifice and to live for in order to create God's intent for the future culture. But here's Will Durant's words. He said, women in that day saw children as a toy. That's his words. Just to be played with for my own personal pleasure. And then if they screw up, then I just move on and let them fend for themselves. That's the way they treated them in the first century. But we're coming a lot closer to that every day. I also want you to notice that there are two vertical lines on the far left, and I want you to fill those in. One at the top, right in submissive to God's God and His Word and others. You know, if you read the Scriptures, the closer you get to God's ideal, the more men and women cooperate with one another, honor one another, the more they are people of submission who love God and want to do His Word, no matter how hard it is. But uh, you might fill in the bottom vertical blank. That's independence of God, God's Word, and others. The further you get down on this sheet, there's a word that stands out. In all those little boxes, it's the word selfish. Independence. The Bible says independence is sin. All we like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. That's sin. And it creates greater and greater measures of dysfunction. And then notice on the far right-hand side, there are two blanks as well. You might write at the top on that top vertical line, wealthy offspring. The further you move up towards God's ideal, Christian or non-Christian, the more you are endowing and empowering children with a healthy self-image, with a secure nature, with a sense of psychological, emotional, and social health. The further down you go, you can just write in the word wounded. 
the more you wound them in those same regards. So what makes a healthy family? If you turn the page, I want to give you 10 characteristics of a healthy family. For years, I've read all kinds of research on, on the characteristics of what makes strong families. Now, some of you ladies may have picked up Ladies Home Journal in the last few weeks. There's a survey that they did on what makes healthy families. And what I find interesting is that all these studies that I've read for years, whether they come from Christian sources or non-Christian research, they all say the same thing. I'll say the same thing. Their redundancy makes a powerful point. And that point is this. Strong marriages, strong families are not hard to define. They're pretty easy to define. So what I've done is I've drawn that together and I've listed some of the sources at the bottom. And I just want to read these 10. You can fill in the blanks. I'll give you a scripture with those to show you if you've got a strong family, it'll fall within these parameters. The first is this. A strong family, a healthy family, letter A, has strong, supportive Honest communication. Now, I want you to know, the Bible's already said that. 2,000 years ago, in Ephesians 4.29, it said, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And then it says, Speak truth to one another. That's just saying the same thing. Secondly, strong families... Spend a significant quantity of time together. But in Ephesians 6, 4, we find that fathers are to raise up their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. You can't do that without time. In Ephesians chapter 5, 28, it says the husbands are to love the wife as his own body. That takes time. Because look how much we love our own body, man. Then it says in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, be careful how you live your life. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. It speaks to time. It's already given us that information. We didn't need this research. Look at number three. A healthy family has a shared religious faith and practice. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? If intimacy is the key, if oneness is important to a healthy marriage, then you don't take the most important thing in our lives, our spiritual life, and join it to an incompatible partner. That's what he's saying there. But that only builds healthy families. Fourthly, strong families have an agreement on key values. But the prophet Amos said in Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they be agreed? He pointed that out long ago. Letter E, strong families have love, consideration, and mutual appreciation. But isn't that what a dumb fisherman said 2,000 years ago in 1 Peter 3, 7? When he said, husbands, live with your wives, listen, in an understanding way. That's understanding. And then he said, and grant her honor. That's mutual appreciation, love, and consideration. And grant her honor as a co-equal heir of the grace of life. Healthy families, letter F, have common interests and goals. But isn't that what Paul said in Philippians 2, 2, where it says, Be of the same mind, maintain the same love, be united in your spirit, intent on one purpose. Boy, that's common interest and goals in my mind. Letter G, strong families have the ability to positively negotiate solutions to crises. And that's why Paul argues in Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil, but respect what is right in others. That's why he says in Ephesians 4, be angry. Go ahead and express some of those ang that anger, but do not sin. Let all bitterness and wrath be put away from you and be kind to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Is that not some rich wisdom in how to maneuver in those landmines of marriage? Healthy families have regular, or at least the parents do, have regular sexual intercourse with one another. But isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 4 and 5, where he says, the woman does not have authority over her own body, but the man, and the man does not have authority over his own body, but the woman. And then he says in the strongest exhortation, stop depriving yourselves of one another. He's talking about sex there. 
He says you owe it to one another. It's important. God created that. And if you ignore it, you're knocking holes in the foundation of your marriage. Letter I says healthy families have a willingness to sacrifice personal interest and resources for the good of the family. But isn't that what Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, and 4? It says, do nothing from, empty, from selfishness, but let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but for the interest of the other. Such rich wisdom here. Didn't come out of Ladies Home Journal or the Nebraska Education Association. This all comes out of the Bible. It's been there. And then finally, strong families have behavior that earns the trust of family members. And that's why when Paul spoke to a young man, he said, let no one look down on your youthfulness in 1 Timothy 4, 12. But rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself to be an example. And then he says in verse 16, Timothy. And I would say to you young marrieds who are just starting out, listen to what he says. This is what he would say to you. He says, you know, show yourself an example in love, faith, Conduct, purity. See, that builds trust. But then he says, take pains in these things. Be absorbed in this so that the others around you can see your progress. Because when they do, you know what that builds? Trust. Trust. There's nothing like seeing a little kid run up to his dad or his mom because there is just virgin trust. You'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. And the idea when they get to be 18 and 19 and they see mom and dad who have been faithful to one another, they've laid down a good track record for as much as they could, what they said, they lived out. If, if nothing else, they struggled to live it out. And you know what that builds in those kids? Trust. It tells them that, there are, that, that there's a faithfulness in society they can count on. And that is the best platform which, within which to build a life. You can do nothing that can replicate that kind of power in a child's life. So how can you apply this? Well, I'm going to give you three conclusions here, action points. I've got a phrase under the personal, the church, and society. Under the personal, you might write... Fight for your family. If you're 25 or 45 or 65, you will never stop fighting for your family. Because every season offers new opportunities and new challenges. Now, if you'll notice, when I gave that, those 10 kind of health tips, there was a little scale there. See it? 1 to 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way to 10. That's a project that I want to throw out to you for this week, if you're a married couple, to consider. And what I'd like you to do is sometime this week, set aside an hour or two hours and just talk to your spouse and go down each one of those and in the most honest way, just decide where are we in this particular health principle. Measure yourself against what is healthy family. So for instance, in strong, supportive, honest communication, if you guys think, well, we don't do real well there, we're a four, put down a four. If you think, man, we're doing great, we're open, we know our hurts, we know our, our ambitions, our goals, then put a nine. But then go through all ten of those, and at the end, add them up. And then I've got a project for you at that point. If after you add all those points up for your marriage, if you fall within zero to fifty, you need to get some help. You might need to go to talk to a pastor, a counselor, or a wise, proven friend. But you need to go and sit down and say, hey, we're not making it here. Because that's not, that's not function. That's dysfunction. And we need to talk through some things, and we need somebody to inject something into our relationship to help us start pushing those numbers up. On the other hand, if we fall between 50 and 75, then I say to you, you need to get accountable. Maybe to another couple. As a man, you might look to an older man or a woman, to an older woman, but take some of those places where the numbers got fell down low and really invest for a while in that area. If it's our values, we have, don't have agreement on values, then fight for it. Fight it. Don't give up. Never give up. Keep fighting. Move four to five. Then scratch like crazy to move five to six. Then kick yourself to get six to seven. But let me tell you, when you get to about eight, you've entered the promised land. 
and it'll feel good. But don't give up. And especially you young couples, if you've got any area here that falls low, you're strong right now. Build on that strength and work hard to build it up and never, ever let it get below seven. Ever. This would be something you could keep for a lifetime. But start early and fight. Then under church, my phrase to you would be, invest down. There are those here who are in their 40s, 50s, and maybe you're thinking about retirement, and I'm going to plead with you, don't retire. Don't ever retire. You've got eternity to retire in. Okay? But while you're here on earth, you're here to serve. So if you're 40, 45, 50, 55, and you've, you know, you've done well, I mean, whether you're a single parent, a divorcee, or married, but you have really been recaptured by the love of Christ and His grace, and you've done well, then turn around and share that treasure down with youth, with singles, with young marrieds. Give it away. I mean, if you've got a good marriage, then step in after we've had graduation this, this spring and take on a group of young marrieds. And don't just give them theory. Speak out of your life. You're just brimming over with the treasure of experience that they're hungering for. I'd say give it away. Some of you men who are professionals who've done well, there are younger men who would give their eye teeth. They would give their monthly paycheck to have you watch them. Just watch them. And come alongside every once in a while and put your arm around them after watching them and utter the words that they would give anything to have. And that is, you're doing a good job, Bill. Keep it up. Just keep it up. I'm watching you. Bill goes, man... That feels so good to my soul because I thought I was so alone. But I've got a man that's watching me. He's a good man. And immediately he'd say, I'd like to be like him. And he likes me. If you're a woman who you're in your 40s or early 50s and your husband's done well in life and you've got ample material possessions and now your kids are leaving home, don't work. Minister. Just go out and minister. There are hungry women all over this city who would love to have an older woman with wealth and experience. Just spend time with her. Disciple her. Build into her life. Help her not make the mistakes you made, but help her to make the right steps that you made in life. Clear all that fog up for her. You desperately need it. Invest down in your life. That's the place of fulfillment. And then finally in society, let me ask you to become an activist. An activist. We need, as a culture, to start speaking out against frivolous divorce. There should be some kind of social pressure that, that the group should apply to men and women who walk out of a marriage with no cause. Uh, and what I mean by that is, it's not going to be the same between us when you walk out of your marriage for no reason other than what you want. We're not going to be buddy-buddies anymore. There, there's going to be some tension there because you've acted irresponsibly. But to let that go, to just turn the cheek and forget about it, is just unleashing the poison of unhealth into our society. Now, that's wrong. We ought to say it's wrong. I would hope that if there's some politicians here, that we could look for some tougher divorce laws and tougher child care laws. The one, that, the one that touches me more often as a pastor is the woman who has given her life to a man and helped him become successful. And at the peak of his earning power, he walks out on her and goes somewhere else and leaves her at the peak of her vulnerability. And after he's kind of cleared up half the assets, which he can usually remake in a year, and after he's paid off the child support, he just clips the cord and lets her drift off into oblivion. Let me tell you, that makes me so angry. That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. And there ought to be stronger laws against that and stronger recompense for the guy who walks out just for some sweet little thing that'll do his bidding. It's wrong. There needs to be... And those hand claps were for some of you women who are in that situation. That's for you. We need to stop subsidizing out-of-wedlock pregnancies. We need to support the kids. But we need to stop support, supporting mothers 
who are just on their own trip. That needs to stop. We need to start supporting ministries that are reaching out to the world who hold up bravely the two-parent family. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.